0: Hey thanks for tuning into our podcast today. My name is Derek Puckett. I'm the lead pastor at Renewal Church of Chicago. If you want to know more information about us you can head to our website at renewalchicago.com. I pray today that this message is a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. Good morning Renewal Church of Chicago. My name is Steve Coble and it is a joy to be with you all this morning. If you would uh, grab your Bible right there in your living room or wherever you may be and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look specifically at verse 7 and make our way through uh, the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus speaks to his followers. And, uh, and I, I want to say just by way of introduction, me and your pastor, uh, Derek, have been friends since we were 12 years old. Uh, and so I feel like I have been a part of the story of Renewal of Chicago, renewal Church of Chicago from afar. And it is a joy to be up close and personal with you in your living room this morning. Um, and so excited in this particular time period in this season of uh, Western American history that there's a church called Renewal Church of Chicago that reflects the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So when you've got Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, would you do me a favor? It is good for my soul if you would just shout back at me, even though I can't hear you. I got it. All right. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It was recently Mother's Day, a few weeks ago, and uh, I I really had a uh, strange and unique time. My grandmother passed away a couple of months ago and my mother passed away in October. And so it was a a really unique uh, experience for me to uh, go through Mother's Day without them. But every Mother's Day, that comes around. I'm always reminded of one particular story of my mom and us together. Uh, I was in the garage and super excited that my mom had purchased for me a basketball goal. Now, if uh, if you're from Indiana, then you understand how serious basketball is and having a basketball and a uh, basketball goal is. And I know that I got friends from Michigan, and you're from Chicago, or you're from uh, uh, lower parts of Illinois, and you think that you're serious about basketball. But let me just tell you, if you don't know what knockout is, if you don't know what horse is, those are games that we played with Michael Jordan, last dance, seriousness. And if you don't know what those games are, then you've proven my point. You're not serious about basketball like we're serious about basketball in Indiana. I digress. But but let me tell you. Uh, this basketball goal was the highlight of my year. It was one of those goals that you filled up with water in the bottom uh, and uh, and it was adjustable. So it was placed in our garage because we hadn't set up the concrete yet in the backyard. And so it was lower to its lowest point. And at the top of the backboard touched the top of the garage. And my mom was in the garage having a conversation with the neighbor And the only other thing in the garage was my father's 1989 Nissan Maxima. And the thing that you have to know is that my father passed away when I was four years old. And this was sort of the one thing that truly represented my dad. And it was the only family car. And so here my mom is having a conversation with the neighbor, and uh, all of a sudden, I, I decide that I want to jump and hang on this basketball goal rim. And it seemed secure because it was uh, it was hitting the top of the ceiling of the garage. And so I'd jump on it, I'd hang on it, I'd jump on it, I'd hang on it. And, and my mom would turn over to me and say, Steve, stop hanging on that basketball goal. It's not safe. And I just wouldn't listen. And eventually, I would jump on that basketball rim one more time and the whole goal would come out from under me and come crashing down on top of the hood of the car. It was so extreme that I thought that I had literally broken the car. And so here I am, I am uh, absolutely ashamed and my mother must have been embarrassed. And, uh, and so I, I run upstairs into my room. I sort of duck my head in between my knees. And I know that, that, that it's coming. It, it doesn't matter that I was past the age of getting spankings. This time I'm getting a spanking. It doesn't matter that uh, I'm 11 and this is my birthday gift. Uh, I may not be able to keep this basketball goal. She may come up here and say, no more basketball goal. I'm I'm in anticipation of her saying, what were you thinking? I, I can't believe you did that. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And yet my mother came upstairs, sat down on the ground with me in my room, put her arms around me, and she said, it's just a car. It's just a car. And it was in that moment that I realized a truism of life. It's that sometimes mercy is more powerful than punishment. Let me say it again. There are going to be times in life when sometimes mercy is more powerful than punishment. You see, as we get ready to come to our our passage this morning, that's exactly what Jesus wants the people he's speaking to to understand. That there are times when mercy is more powerful than punishment our passage is pretty straightforward. Uh, The the big idea, if you will, for our time together is merciful people receive mercy. Merciful people receive mercy. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us. Uh, We pray now that you would make much of Jesus. Um, We pray that he would steal the show that you would show us who we are in light of what he's accomplished and that we would rest in that reality. Father, use me in spite of me to do that. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump into the particular beatitude that we find ourselves in, Uh, Essentially Jesus has gone up onto a mountain and he is speaking to his followers and he tells them these eight beatitudes or these eight blessings. And so you'll see at the beginning of Matthew chapter five, blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness sake. And historically people have interpreted those passages to be like things that Christians ought to do or things that good people do, right? And really what I want you to understand is that these are characteristics of people who are candidates for the kingdom of God. So in other words, in order to receive the grace that Jesus offers, you've got to be a person who recognizes your spiritual poverty. I am in desperate need. I am spiritually bankrupt and in desperate need of grace. You have got to be a person who mourns over the fact that there is sin in you and sin around you. You've got to be a person who recognizes, I don't have any righteousness. I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so the Beatitudes really are characteristics of things that make people candidates for the kingdom of heaven, candidates to be recipients of grace. And it's interesting that Jesus uses this word blessed in our particular passage in the other portions of the Beatitudes because this word blessed in our particular day and age, we might say something like, man, I am a blessed person to say that we are just uh, a fortunate person or we are a person that has had a lot of good things happen to them in spite of the bad things. And yet what Jesus wants us to understand when it comes to this word blessed that he uses in our, our passage, it, it, it really carries with it the idea of happiness. And it's it's really unique. As, as a matter of fact, he's communicating uh, this idea of life to the fullest measure, that, that is what he's articulating of these people who are characterized by these things. In John 10 and 10, and the words will come up on the screen, this is the message translation. Uh, he says, I came so that, you, so that they could have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. So that's the idea of what Jesus is saying, that people who are a part of the kingdom of heaven get to experience this kind of life in the future and yet and still in the here and now. The other thing about Jesus' use of the word blessed is that, like I said, it means happy. And a lot of people struggle with that when it comes to the, uh, the idea of what it means to follow Jesus. And so you've got people on one end of the spectrum that say, man, God just wants you to obey him so that you can be prosperous. And so uh, God kind of becomes your uh, cosmic butler in the sky who you obey in order to get things from him so that you can be prosperous. Or on the other end of that, there are other folks who look at following Jesus as something that has to be uh, constantly miserable. So in other words, we say to ourselves, man, if uh, if there are two decisions to be made, what's the hardest decision? What's the most difficult thing? What's the thing that's going to make me most miserable? That's the thing that God must be calling me to. And you see, the reality of both of those ideologies is that they're both opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, you you might put one in the uh, category of prosperity theology and the other in the category of poverty theology, And yet what Jesus wants us to understand about the gospel of grace is that when we align ourselves to him and his will, it actually allows us to experience the fullest measure of life. So whatever God has uh, called you to or gifted you in, there are things that he has put in you that you get to experience the joy of because of how he's created you. So to align yourself with God and his will is to not make yourself miserable. It may call you to uh, lay aside certain parts of your life and lifestyle, but ultimately it's for your greatest joy. Jesus says, blessed, happy are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now, it's easy for us to look at these beatitudes and think to ourselves, man, this is a formula for receiving things from God. But, but what we've been studying or what, 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 what you see in Matthew chapter 5 is that these beatitudes are more about characteristics of people who are part of the kingdom, like we've been saying. In other words, they are more about being than they are about doing. These are characteristics uh, uh, or hallmarks of the follower of Jesus's life. So what exactly is mercy or what does it mean to be merciful? I love what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about mercy in uh, in his seminal work, The Sermon on the Mount. He he says this, and the words will come up on the screen. Grace is especially associated with people in their sins. Mercy is especially associated with people in their misery. While grace looks down upon sin as a whole, mercy looks especially upon the miserable consequences of sin so that mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. That is the essential meaning of being merciful. It is pity plus action. The concern about people's misery leads to an anxiety to relieve it, to to do something about it. and so if if grace is a, a free gift that we don't deserve, then mercy is the movement to relieve the misery that whatever we've done, Uh, uh, around our lives, that the misery that that we've experienced, it is to relieve that in uh, the work of somebody else. Uh, And if you would just allow these uh, definitions to kind of be a kind of Lowry's seasoning salt to uh, help us gain a better understanding of mercy itself. But scholar John Nolan says this about mercy in this passage. He says, it allows people to make a fresh start and often involves forgiveness and the release of others from their indebtedness. It is costly in a variety of ways. It is costly. Mercy is costly. It is a release of people's indebtedness. He says, blessed are the merciful, Jesus says, for they shall receive mercy. Now, look with me at that word merciful uh, in, uh, and mercy in our passage. Both of them in the original language. The New Testament is originally written in a language called Greek. And both of them begin with the root word uh, eliamon. Eliamon. Uh, it means to show compassion. It is the ability to sympathize with Another, to get inside the skin of another, and thus you are able to dispense mercy. Uh, it's a person who's able to connect with you, uh, to step into the shoes of another, and identify with you. Uh, some people know the name Jeffrey Schalmer. He was a renowned journalist who came to fame during the AIDS uh, epidemic and pandemic, and he could write about it with such. Uh, poignancy and passion and precision that no one else remotely compared to how he wrote about AIDS. He, He was once asked the question, how were you able to write so poignantly about AIDS that nobody else can compare to you? And he said, I have a unique advantage than other people when it comes to the issue of AIDS. You see, I actually have it. The reason why Jeffrey Shamer was able to write so poignantly about AIDS is because he identified directly with the person who had AIDS. You see, this idea of mercy is to get into the skin of another. Mercy is to put yourself into the experience, into the shoes of another person. About 10 years ago, I was a seminary student in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, a few years before that, I had an experiential sort of line drawn in the sand Uh, uh, sort of uh, -of neo-pulled-out-of-the-matrix kind of experience when it came to becoming a follower of Jesus. I just said, God, I want to give you my life. I am turning away from my lifestyle. I am clinging to you. And so what came with that is this kind of idea that when we grow in our faith in Jesus, there are certain arrival points that you get to. And I had this sort of up and to the right uh, kind of perspective of the process of what that looked like. And uh, I, I really had a pseudo perfectionism kind of idea when it came to uh, my own growth. And especially when I was called, uh, I felt called by God to become a pastor. And, uh, and so you see the qualifications of elders there in First Timothy, Chapter three. And even though I wouldn't say that, that there's a sense of perfectionism that I needed to arrive at as a pastor, I would never say those things with my words. I, I thought those things in my heart. And so I was, here I am, I'm down in Memphis, Tennessee, I'm having an incredible time. Uh, I was down there with your pastor, Pastor Derek, and we we were just... Loving serving the church and loving going to school and uh, loving just being a fly on the wall for so many incredible conversations, and I, and I was going about my way doing my thing and just really enjoying my time, uh, and then it happened. I messed up. I mean, I mean, I messed up big time, and and I I I, I, I held it in for a couple of, of weeks and. It was like David in the Psalms where where he says that uh, it was like my bones wasted away on the inside because of this thing that I had done. And I I just knew that if I told anybody about this because of my pseudo-perfectionist ideology that, man, it was time for me to pack up my bags and head on home. Uh, I heard boys to men in the background uh, of my mind. It's the end of the road. Uh, and so I thought, if I have to share this with anybody, they're, they're surely going to uh, send me packing. And so I, I knew that I had a meeting with Pastor Ricky, who was my supervisor at the time, later that, uh, that week. And here I am, 22, 23 years old, and uh, I begin the meeting, and he's kind of giving opening remarks and different things. And eventually I say, Ricky, I, I need to tell you something. And I share with him what I had done, and in this 20-minute or so conversation, it was as though Pastor Ricky stepped out of his seat, moved across to my seat, sat down in my chair, in my shoes, and empathized with my misery. it was as though he stepped into the shoes of another to relieve their misery. And after my confession, he said, go and sin no more. Mercy. And it was in that moment that I realized a couple of things. In my attempt at perfectionism and trying to keep the qualifications of an elder in my own strength, I realized, wait a second, my righteousness isn't in my performance. My righteousness isn't in my ability to keep the rules. My righteousness is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And the fact that I was trying to stand in my own righteousness is rebellion against God in and of itself. And secondly, I realized that same old story that I had remembered of my mother so many years ago when I pulled the basketball goal down on my father's car, sometimes mercy is more powerful than punishment. Sometimes mercy is more powerful than punishment. And yet the reality, even though many of us understand that to be a truism of life, the reality is that we live in a society right now where even the insinuation of wrongdoing Uh, from others brings outrage. If somebody says there's the possibility of wrongdoing, we write people off. There's actually a phrase for it. It's called cancel culture. Now I'm not talking about things that people won't own up to and I'm not talking about things people habitually do with no remorse and in many ways, giving voice to people who haven't had a voice in our society is a wonderful thing But in our process of progress in American society, we want all the benefits of the kingdom of God without submitting ourselves to the kingship of Jesus. And so the things that we find to be the right things, if somebody does something wrong socially, we say cancel them, press the cancel button, delete, unfollow, cancel. And that's just a part of of our culture. There's this mob mentality of shaming people or publicly shaming people until they are no longer able to exist in the public sphere. Without ever giving anybody the chance of redemption, we judge them based, we judge their entire life based on the worst thing that they've uh, ever done. Uh, You see, the the world keeps throwing people's failures back into their faces 10, 20 years down the line. and, uh, and, And the reality is, is that that's just not the gospel way. You see, I'm so glad the author of life doesn't cancel me when I do wrong. I'm so glad the maker of heaven and earth doesn't turn and press the cancel button when Satan, the accuser, accuses things against me. But the beauty of the gospel is that he stepped into my shoes. He experienced all of what human beings experience and lived the perfect life for us and cried out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Father, have mercy on them. I'm so glad Jesus doesn't press the cancel button. On me, And I wish I had a witness, even though I can't hear you. I wish I had a witness who could testify. I know that's right. I know that Jesus didn't press the cancel button on me. Praise God. He didn't ch- he didn't press the cancel button on me and delete me because mercy suits my case. Praise God for mercy. Praise God that Jesus doesn't press the cancel button on us. Okay, Steve, I, I agree cancel culture isn't isn't kind of the way followers of Jesus roll, but maybe that's just for people who aren't followers of Jesus yet. That, that's a great question. Let, let's check Jesus' receipts on that one. The guy who Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Jesus told, as he was getting ready to be brutally murdered, he tells the apostle Peter, you're going to deny me three times tonight. And Peter says, no way, Lord, that, 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 that would never be the case. And if there ever was a time in human history for somebody to press the cancel button, this was it. Peter did deny Jesus three times, but Jesus still didn't deny Peter. He still built his church upon that rock. But see, there's some other bad stuff that Jesus can't have mercy on, right? Like one day Jesus was at the temple in Jerusalem and and some religious leaders brought a woman to him who had been caught in the act of adultery. And so she didn't go to the Pharisees uh, and say, Hey, I really messed up. She she didn't uh she didn't say, Hey, Jesus, I'm coming to you to confess my sins. She was caught in the act. And they brought her to Jesus, and, 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 and the Bible tells us that uh, the, 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 the religious leaders of that time s- said that the law says for her to be stoned, and what do you say, Jesus? And the Bible says in John chapter 8 that he uh, went down to the ground and grabbed a stick and began to write in the sand. And what many Bible scholars uh, propose is that Jesus began to write in the sand the many sins that the religious leaders had done that nobody knew about. And as soon as he gets done writing in the sand, he looks up to the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and he says, where are your accusers? She says, they've all gone. He says, is there no one to condemn you? She says, no one. He looks at her and says, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. We all need mercy. The beauty of the gospel storyline is that God has afforded us that mercy through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the reason why Jesus can... Uh, can be merciful to this woman caught in the act of adultery is because he came to perform the greatest act of mercy. He, he came as the one offended by your sin and my sin, and he acted to relieve the misery, to step into our shoes. He, he took on the misery of sin on the cross, and he extends that mercy to everyone who would cling to him as the object of mercy. And as we follow him, we we, we have to become people who are like him, who are characterized by mercy. And our failure to be characterized by mercy really means we have failed to recognize that we are the ones who are poor in spirit. We are the ones who should be mourning over our sin. We are the ones who should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness because we don't have it. And and, and the reality is, if we're still holding on to grudges and not being characterized by mercy, we We're not people who are poor in spirit because we really think that we have some kind of spiritual merit to present to God. We're not hungering and thirsting for righteousness because we think that we actually have some righteousness of our own. And we just become the religious leaders who brought the woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus and blind to our own spiritual bankruptcy. We all need mercy. Not just to begin, we need mercy to continue to the end. And so here I am. I'm at your neighborhood. I've pulled up to your apartment courtyard. You're grilling out on the grill. And I'm sipping on a white claw, I mean a watermelon Waterloo. if i could just send a note of wisdom your way i want to ask you a question to the parents who are holding that little child right now in your arms you're sitting there and 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 you know that this, is, this child is the apple of, uh, of your eye and, uh, and, and they, they, are, they are everything to you and you have this trajectory set in your mind for them that's always up and to the right and they're gonna accomplish incredibly great things. The reality of their lives is that beautiful child who you think can do no wrong is going to disappoint you one day they're going to do something wrong. That little child is going to be kicked out of school. They're going to get a bad report on their report card. They're going to grow up and they're going to have a run-in with the police. They're going to grow up and they're going to get some girl pregnant. They're going to grow up and they're gonna get pregnant and you will have an opportunity to make a decision, mercy or punishment, mercy or punishment. Let let me go a little bit further, let me not even uh, uh, apply them to you specifically. But let me ask you a question. What is that thing that your child could do that you would be most embarrassed by? Got it? That thing. Will your parenting be characterized by mercy in that moment? Or will it be characterized by punishment? Now, hear me say, mercy isn't the absence of discipline. Discipline may be a part of something that you have, discipline may be a part of mercy. And yet, the reality is if that thing that they do so disappoints you that the entirety of who they are is based on their performance, then you've misunderstood the gospel entirely. Because you are a person who's received mercy, who has been moved, Jesus has moved on your behalf to relieve your misery. You are to be people who move on other people's behalf to relieve their misery. Let me say a word to that parent who's listening uh, to me, who uh, who has, or let me just say a word to that adult who has parents who uh, they don't speak to, parents who they're frustrated with, parents who uh, who. Uh, you know what? Their parent owned up to that thing that they did. They apologized for it. They, they, they asked for your forgiveness, but you're still holding on to it. Are you going to be characterized by mercy? Are you going to be characterized by punishment? Maybe you need to pick up the phone today and say, mercy suits my case, and so I need to extend mercy. We may not be best friends tomorrow, I might not call you every every day, but I wanna move forward by God's grace together. Somebody, you're a boss, and you've got people who report to you, and I know that cancel culture is popular, and you've got a, a, a objective that you've gotta meet at the end of the month, and, uh, and the reality is is sometimes people aren't good that are a part of your team, and so you've gotta fire people sometimes, and, and yet, The truth of the gospel is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot be characterized by cancel culture. You you must be characterized by mercy. It doesn't mean you won't ever have to fire anybody, but it means in the process of doing it, you have to be a merciful person. And finally, I wanna say to the church, sadly, uh, my my mentor and pastor and, and your pastor's mentor uh, Brian Laritz said a few weeks ago on Instagram, uh, he, he said, I'm so glad uh, that Jesus wasn't an evangelical Christian. He says, I'm so glad that Jesus wasn't an evangelical Christian because if Jesus was an evangelical Christian, then Peter would have never made it to preach at Pentecost. Let that set in for a moment. Sadly, the church has been a place where People have missed experiencing mercy. And may we as a congregation of people keep our leaders accountable to say, is this a place of mercy? Keep those, those, that future elder, that, that future uh, Christian leader, remind yourself of the gospel of grace that you didn't get into this thing through your own righteousness, But you got into it and you continue in it by God's grace and mercy. Merciful people will receive mercy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you that you moved on our behalf to relieve our misery so that we could experience intimacy with you and intimacy with one another. Would we remind ourselves this week, blessed, happy are those who extend mercy, who live in line with the characteristics, customs, and practices of the kingdom of heaven. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Thanks again for tuning into our podcast today. I prayed that it was a blessing and an encouragement to your soul. I look to see you at one of our services at 9:30 or 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. Take care. God bless you.